Well, today I always get the pleasure of talking to the kids a little bit uh, when it's Family Sunday. So I want to tell you guys, the kids, a little bit about when I was in fourth grade. Do we have any fourth graders in here right now? Anybody? Okay, we got one, two, three. All right. So here's the thing. Uh, This is a confession. I cried a lot in the fourth grade. And I know some of you might think, well, that's a big kid. A fourth, fourth grader is a big kid, and you shouldn't be crying. But there was a lot of sadness in my life that was going on. So I found myself, you know, even though I wouldn't have been mad at myself, I was a big kid, but I, I found myself crying a lot because of this sadness. And I remember my fourth grade teacher's name was Mrs. Flory, which is a neat name. It's fun to say. Flory, right? Say it with me. Flory, right? And her words always made me feel better. She just had this ability to just make me feel better at a time where I just didn't feel good very often. I was very sad. And what she was doing without ever saying Jesus, she was being Jesus to me because one of my favorite things about Jesus is that he spoke to people whose lives were hard and whose lives were sad and people who were confused. And they were the people who a lot of times other people just didn't even want to bother talking to. They were embarrassed to talk to them because they had diseases, or they were poor, or, or they were just sad for other reasons. But Jesus loved to talk to these people. Why? Because he loved them, and he knew how sad they were, and he knew that they had plenty of reasons to cry. And, the, and he also knew that they needed his words more than they needed anything else, more than they needed anyone else. And so this is what Jesus did, is he spoke to them, and he encouraged And the good news of today of Pentecost, when we think about it, in a world where lots of us are still crying, lots of us still have a lot of sadness and confusion, is Jesus went up to heaven, but his words stayed with us. His words of encouragement. He he promised his disciples, he promised us, he promised you, even you children, that we would still have the words of comfort. We would still have the words of help because he would send his Holy Spirit to us. And let me tell you, it's really good news. There are at least three ways that we get to hear these words. Do you know that? Sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks through people like Mrs. Flory or people in our church. They speak these words of comfort and hope and love. Sometimes the Spirit speaks to us right through the Bible story, the, the true story, the one true story of the world, and it encourages us because we feel how hard the stories are that maybe we're living in or hard the stories are that we're hearing about. So the, the Bible tells us. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit can speak right into our hearts. And I've had some of those moments and some of the saddest times where the Holy Spirit says, it's okay now but it's going to be okay. Jesus loves you. The world is in his hands. So maybe, kids, maybe you need to hear that. Maybe your parents need to hear that today. But the Holy Spirit is with us, and that's what we celebrate on Pentecost, is that the words of Jesus are still with us, and the words of Jesus become our words, and the words of Jesus are life, and they're hope, and they're words that come to our tears. So I don't know how you're feeling today, but today this is what we're celebrating, is that we still have Jesus' words because we still have Jesus' Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our children. I pray that those who are here, those who are um, behind me in the ministry, that the words of the Spirit, the words of comfort and hope and peace and life would come to them that would be clear to them. And I pray that that would be true of us also. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.
And also, kids, today, your, your discovery words, the words you're listening for are power and story. So see if you can keep a running total of those. And again, Miss Sharon will have, she'll have a treat for you guys afterward. But be sure to let her know how many. I've got the number written right down here. Unless I decide to say a few more, but we've got a general number of how many times I'm going to say that. So there is an oft-quoted proverb that reads, and you may have heard it, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Have you heard that? Proverbs 18.22. And we mostly quote it to say, in essence, use your words for good. Build up. Don't tear down. Be careful what you say. But there are actually two verses to this tiny lesson, and they're, that, they're bookended in a way, and when taken together, it makes an even deeper point that we need to pay attention to. Let me read the whole thing, the two verses. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. What's he saying? Our own words are like our food, what we live on. They are supply of our understanding and our experience in the world. They're the rehearsal. Put it another way, be careful of the story you tell yourself. It might be provision, but it might taste good. It might be momentarily satisfying, but it might also be poison. We all, in a sense, eat our words. The question is, what happens when we do? Think for a moment about what counselors do. They get us talking, right? By listening to us, they help us hear ourselves. And often at their best, they help us identify what lies beneath our language, what we've taken for granted, rehearsed, what we've repeated, and what may be undermining our mental or our emotional well-being, what might be complicating our relationships, what might be stunting growth and opportunity, or just plain perpetuating lies about ourselves and others. They're often the words we've been told, aren't they? What we've been eating lives. They may be starving us, and they might be poison. So maybe you've heard this said, language is culture. Have you ever heard that? I think that's what this proverb is on to. The principle that words are sort of magnetic, they're sticky, and they're powerful, not just personally, but ultimately. Language becomes a form of agreement. Words have power to shape the story by which we and our contemporaries live. Magnetic, sticky. They are the stuff of life and death. And I don't have to tell you that every culture, not just ours, has a way of, of perpetuating, of promulgating a story that may not be grounded in truth or reality. It's in us, all of us, it's in culture to want to discover, to want to understand and explain, right? To understand, to explain, to discover what's going on. But here we're prone to make it up as we go language for it, even if it's not accurate. We try out ideas with words to describe these ideas, and then we tend to eat the ones that suit us, like fruit from a tree. And of course, we pass it around. The church does this too. We have a long history of embracing and repeating words that fall short or go well beyond the true story we're supposed to know, the true story we're supposed to be sharing. We've spoken a culture of legalism, prioritizing behavior management and moral performance as the Christian norm. We've also spoken a culture of license, 
prioritizing personalized grace without the shared call to personal sacrifice and obedience. We've spoken a culture of collusion. Collusion with power. Collusion and power. Casting the pearls of the kingdom before the swine of worldly nations, of greedy corporations, and of fruitless motivations. That's a lot of Asians. The list goes on, right? Our words have meant life, but if we're honest as the church, our words have also meant death. So on this Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate the redemption of language, the birthplace of the church, the unifying power that fell upon the church, I want you to think with me about a few things with regard to language, with regard to what Pentecost means. And the first is this, the, this inherent power of the tongue I'm talking about, this is no accident. This is no accident, and this underlies the power of both Babel and of Pentecost. It's a unique gift to humans to have the power of language because we are made in the image and likeness of God. The power of the tongue is woven into the glorious fact of our creation. God is the God who speaks, and when he speaks, things happen. It is the utterance of God that creates in Genesis, right, over and over, and God said... Let there be, and there was. It's the voice of God in Psalm 29 that we read on Wednesday in our town hall that is over the waters, that flashes forth fire, or in other words, creates fire, that shakes the wilderness, that is full of majesty, that makes the deer give birth. It is the voice of the Lord that blesses with peace. The psalmist's point is that God exerts his dominion and his love. Can we switch to this? I think I'm cutting in and out. Can we switch to the podium? The psalmist's point is that God exerts his dominion and his love, makes himself known simply with his voice. And about our scriptures, we remind ourselves every Sunday, the Spirit of God has spoken through the prophets. John's gospel tells us Jesus was and is the Logos, the Word made flesh, Word, the immutable truth that creates and holds the whole cosmos together. The Son of God was born by the Spirit in the womb of Mary to become the embodiment and the voice of God and the climax of Israel's story of their words. And by Jesus' words, new creation was birthed. Life was given. And then, as promised, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost to put new creation, to put these words in the hearts, to put these words on the lips of God's new creation people, to tell this story, to give that story away to others, filling empty spiritual bellies with life and truth. And as divine image bearers, this is what we were made for. This is what is being restored at Pentecost. Secondly, Pentecost is about a new city. A new city, it's, it's the image of something, of a city born of renewed linguistic unity. It is that reversal of Babel. Let me just give you a quick background. You probably know it. Maybe you do. Ever since Adam and Eve denied or forgot whose words gave them life, people have been building cities that managed to be the physical manifestation and expression of their shared understanding and value of their language. Cities begin with language and understanding. Cities are language in three dimensions. After the fall in Genesis 3, when Cain goes off as this wounded and bruised and puzzled man, what does he do? He builds a city. 
Within a few chapters, that city in the plain of Shinar, as we read, has become the Tower of Babel, which would have been an ancient ziggurat, a place to bring God down to the top of it, to bring God down to earth. In Babel, we read today that they spoke in one language and applied it to what the Bible calls making a name for themselves. It sort of reeks with authority and control. They wanted God to occupy a place that they would create for Him instead of themselves living in the place and in the way He had created for them. Huge reversal. They were reimagining the order of the cosmos on their terms and then recasting God as an accessory to this project. Does that sound familiar? You might say the sin of Babel was not a godless pursuit. It was a less of God pursuit. A demotion. Putting God in his place at the top of a tower made with human hands. On the face of it, something looks a bit right about what's going on, right? This unity, this community building culture through shared understanding, bearing the divine image, creatively working together. But working together on what? That's the question. It's always the question. We heard in our reading how the story plays out. God was impressed with their unity, but unimpressed with their application of it. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And then, as it plays out in verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. But not for long. They got tribal. They kept building kingdoms and empires that were built on the backs of the powerless, forgetting or denying those to whom God had called them, forgetting the story, and forgetting God. And so history rolls on according to this faulty story. Another kingdom emerges on a peninsula in the Mediterranean. It's a sprawling empire. It's the tallest tower yet. And then God speaks life. At this moment, in this place, and under this empire, God speaks life into the womb of a poor girl who was singing the songs of the oppressed and the poor, the seemingly forgotten and passed over by Rome and all the kingdoms who crushed the souls of people like her. Nine months later, the Word became flesh, speaking words of justice and of mercy and truth and holy judgment. This king who never compromised his message with selfishness or insecurity and control like all the other kings of all the other kingdoms and the emperors of all the other empires. And then on the tale of three simple words, it is finished. He hung his head and died. But here's what we know. Those were not his last words. The risen Christ told his disciples to go and wait for the promise of the Father the Holy Spirit. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. God's presence had descended before in fire upon the altar in the temple, and now God's presence and God's word was descending upon his people in fire the people who would be his temple, the place where God dwells in the earth, the people through whom God would make himself known. So this otherwise frightened rabble were given a new language, language in the spirit, spoken in the tongues of many tribes and many nations, but with one unified message, to begin to build a different kind of city within every other city. 
The good news of the kingdom of God reverberated off the walls of a concrete empire that had been paving over every other culture, crushing soul and body. And this language was resounding in their hearts. This new city was about to rise. Not with concrete, but with living stones, as Peter says. Lives assembled, lives held together by Jesus and holding one another up. All kinds of people. All kinds of people, but whose first allegiance and deepest joy is tethered to new citizenship, speaking this language through every other language on earth. And thirdly, what's happening here, the possibility for city to be built, the possibility for new creation to happen is that the Holy Spirit is actually teaching us the culture of heaven. That's why the language matters so much teaching us to worship with heaven. This reversal of Babel at Pentecost is not just a sign that God is unifying language again. It's not merely a historical marker. It's really about what that unifying language and its source is beginning to do through those who speak it. As I said before, working together on what? What are we working on? That's always the question. This language is always realigning us with the purpose for which we are made. What is that purpose? We're not talking about this, an ethereal, otherworldly experience or spirituality. Nor are we talking about a set of religious principles and practices or rules. We're talking about recovering a culture of attentiveness to what God desires and what God decrees for the world. A new attentiveness. What God is singing over the world he loves. This is the song we have learned and are learning. Speaking the language of the Spirit means learning to sing the song of heaven. To ourselves, to the stories we've been telling ourselves, and in every sphere of life. And so Pentecost, this outpouring of the Spirit, is how we have come to learn and to speak the language of heaven, to bring the reign of heaven to earth, even in our small little outposts. Now I want you to remember this, this thing. This is really important. Paul said this is foolishness to the world. We forget that because of how ubiquitous Christian, at least religion and culture is in our culture. But remember, Paul says it's foolishness. It can sound like drunken babbling to a world satisfied with and intoxicated by the food and drink of their own words. And let's call it, uh, let, let's call it the doctrine of Pentecost. It may be one of the most foolish things we believe. Seriously. The Spirit of God who hovered over the chaos and void of creation, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, who empowered a bunch of nobodies from nowhere to subvert not just Rome, but every kingdom that would come and the kingdom of darkness, this same Spirit now dwells in each of us and all of us together to restore us to the language and the purpose of God's inevitable shalom. Not just peace, but order, coherence, integration, community, dignity, and humanity. Pentecost reminds us that these things I just listed are not the fruit of discovery, and they're not going to be the fruit of trying harder. They're not the property of politics, despite the constant language in our ears. They're not the life-giving fruit of finite human achievement. But they are the fruit of divine gift. 
and of infinite empowerment. Even through death, even through sadness, even through tears, but out the other side. So what does this mean for us as a close? What does it mean personally for us and as the church today? First of all, what's your story? What's the one you've been telling yourself and others? What culture lives through the words you believe and rehearse? And where do they come from? Zooming out, what are we trying to build here? What is village trying to be? And you know, my, my thinking about the church is hyper-local. I can't fix the problems of the church out there. We can only be the church right here. What are we trying to build? On what can we rely to build it? What kind of shape is it taking so far? What do you see? What do you think? What are we talking about? Is it life? Is it shalom? Is our shared language, uh, is it building an outpost for the kingdom here? Uh, an outpost of God's eternal city right here? Is it grounded in unity despite difference? And are we speaking the same language of life that the Son of God promised and the Father sent? Let me just end with this thought from theologian Willie Jennings. He said the primary act of the Holy Spirit, get ready for it, by the way. The primary act of the Holy Spirit is to call people to go where they may not want to go, to do what they may not want to do, and to do it with people they may not want to do it with. Why? Because it's actually life. And it might not be the story we've been telling and living by. It may not be the story we think we want, but it's better. We're called to the language of heaven and thereby called to a culture and a city whose architect and builder is God. And I'll tell you the psalm that's been turning in over, over in me this week. The psalmist sang it prophetically. He said, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. Make glad the city of God. It is this true gladness that is meant to undergird our language. This true gladness whether we resist or substitute or, or despair of it as we might, this gladness is the destiny of the whole world. It is this gladness that is our message. Do you believe that? Lord, may this gladness, may this hope, may it remain on our lips. Whatever we're experiencing, whatever we've come to tell ourselves, help us to hear again the language of heaven. Through your word, through your spirit, and through the people on whom you have brought the fire of the Spirit, the gospel, that they may speak life to one another, and that we may speak life and worship to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.